Today's scripture reading is from, is from Psalm one, chapter 138, verses 6 through 8. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Thank you, Connor. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. O Lord, your steadfast love endures forever. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God will fulfill his promises forever and ever? Because if we did, we would be willing to do anything. We would be excited about anything for the cause of Christ. In recent weeks, we've been journeying through the life of the early church in the book of Acts. Some of these people were actually eyewitnesses to the things that Jesus said and did here on this earth. But all of them were eyewitnesses to how people were being transformed by the truth day by day. And as Todd revealed last week, there was this infectious spirit around their movement as the Holy Spirit was at work in marvelous ways. We too can have the same type of environment at our church on Spring Road because since we're baptized believers, the power of the Spirit is at work in you and me and we're eyewitnesses of the truth as well. But what's missing then? Because we seem to have all the pieces of the puzzle, but what's missing? This morning, my intention is is not to shame anyone or to make anyone feel guilty, but I do hope to make you a little frustrated. Because when we read about what's going on in this community, when we read things like they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching day by day, attending the temple together, and the Lord added to their number day by day those people who were being saved. When we read that, does it sound attainable? Does it sound like something that we're doing here at Spring Road, or does it sound unrealistic? If we think it sounds unrealistic, then my question again is what are we missing? This year, we're looking at our role as witnesses of the good news. Much like in a court case, witnesses can play a key role when paired with evidence to uncover the truth of what happened. But if an eyewitness is unwilling, it doesn't matter what they saw or what they heard, it is of no use in a trial. It doesn't matter how their testimony might influence the jury. It doesn't matter how their testimony might corroborate the evidence. It doesn't matter if the witness is unwilling, then their witness is useless. Is that what the church is missing today? Is our witness useless? This morning, I want to look one more time at Peter and John, who were arrested in Acts chapter 4 for the things that they were saying about Jesus. 
And their response to the pressure to keep silent is, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. That's, the response is so compelling. But what comes next in Acts chapter 4, I think, is much more compelling. And as we continue to read this morning, I hope to make us wonder, what would it take for me to be more like that? This is not a broad question, like what can the church do to be more like that? No, I'm talking to you individually, and I'm talking to myself. What can I do to be more like this, what we're about to read? Because I believe that what we'll see is what might be missing from the church. It might be what's missing from our witness. I want to reread a few of the verses in Acts chapter 4 to remind us of what's taking place here in verse 1 of Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, they being Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. How dare they? And they arrested them and put them into custody. Remember, Peter and John and others were preaching that Jesus was crucified. They were preaching that Jesus was resurrected, and they were healing and doing wondrous things in his name. And the leaders, it says, were greatly annoyed. I love it. Greatly annoyed. On in verse 13. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. One of the things that was so annoying was that these fishermen weren't scholars, they weren't trained leaders, but they were speaking with boldness, and people were listening. And all these religious leaders could do was to ask them kindly to stop. It's pretty funny if you think about it, that they had no other problem with Peter and John other than the fact that they were greatly annoyed. In verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. I I love these scenes here. These believers were so excited about, uh, so excited about God. They're so excited about Jesus and his resurrection and their own gift of a new life that they can't stop talking about it. And those who remain on the outside, those who oppose these new believers of Jesus, are annoyed. But I want to draw your attention to one phrase that we read just a few few verses ago. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Peter and John were, were bold, but how could people see it? What does, that, what does that even mean? How can you see that someone is being bold? The word used here for boldness can refer to someone who is speaking plainly, a, a use of speech that conceals nothing or passes over nothing. But it's usually used to describe someone who is embodying courageousness, fearlessness, and confidence. But sometimes if people aren't careful, this type of overconfidence can be troublesome. I'm sure that there are people in your life where you've seen a video of someone online who has displayed a level of overconfidence. 
Here's a few examples. In the stock market, if someone is overconfident, they might invest too much in high-risk stocks only for their projections to fall short, and they will lose a great deal. Or in school, a student who is overconfident for an exam, and so they decide they don't need to prepare or to study. And when it comes time for the test, they look down, and the only answer they can confidently fill in is their name. That may have been some of you in school, hopefully not for our seniors who are in the ACT and SAT in this season. Or when I was growing up, our family really enjoyed the reality show American Idol. I'm sure you've heard of it. There truly were some talented singers who went on that show. But more often than not, it was the people who were overconfident in their singing ability. Those are the ones who had the most screen time, and that's not always a good thing. Or even in sports, there are fans who are so confident that their team is going to win the championship at the end of the season. Before the season even starts, you can look this up, they'll get a tattoo maybe on their arm or on their back of their team winning the championship. And when the season ends, they're either left with a really proud moment, I guess, or a really expensive mistake. And in, in that case, it's usually the latter. It's really easy to think of people who are punished for their overconfidence, whose boldness gets them into trouble. Because if you're looking for a large reward, be it money or glory or fame, it often comes at a large risk, right? For the apostles, it seems like The same is true. The greater the risk, the greater the reward. And the risk that they had for their boldness was maybe humiliation, maybe being arrested, which they endured, or other types of physical persecution or social persecution that would come later. But for them, the reward was far greater than any potential risk, emotional or physical. What makes Peter and John different than the overconfident American Idol contestant or the overzealous NFL fan. I'm sure there's many things that make them, uh, make them uh, very different. Is that they had a firm belief to back up their confidence. The reward for the apostles wasn't just realistic. It wasn't just attainable. In fact, it had already been attained for them. It wasn't a gamble, or it wasn't a guess. It was an assurance. Usually, boldness comes from knowledge, but it also comes from community and from prayer. What comes next for Peter and John, I think, is the most important moment in the entire scene. On in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. It's kind of a minor note here in the story, so minor that we might gloss over it. Generally, when we're reading scripture, it might be easy to jump over these transitional phrases. But don't miss what's revealed right here. After Peter and John are released, when they have this good news to share, where's the first place they go? To their friends. What's being communicated in the text here is that they're so anxious to return to their people, to the group which they belong, to their brothers and sisters. 
in Christ. Let's keep reading in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When they get back to their friends, they, they don't begin slandering and gossiping about the people who had just been persecuting them. Or if this were to happen today, they weren't making passive-aggressive uh, posts on social media for their friends to rally around. No, they lifted their voices together in prayer. And the content of that prayer is incredibly valuable for you and for me. God, you are powerful, almighty, sovereign Lord. This term for God is not common in the New Testament, but it was frequently used in Greek and Roman literature about the same time to refer to their own leaders of their empires and kingdoms. What the Christians are declaring in this prayer, first and foremost, is that the Lord is God. The Lord is King. The Lord is in charge over all creation. And the next thing that they acknowledge in their prayer is that the earthly, uh, uh, is is they acknowledge the earthly rulers and the earthly leaders and their threats, but they don't do it to condemn them. No, they do it so they can continue to ask for more boldness. Their prayer is essentially this. God, we know that you are going to do your job. And while you do, give us the boldness and the courage to do ours. I want to ask you again, like I asked earlier, what can you do to be more like this? If we were to keep reading in verse 32, we'd see yet another example of how this infectious, Holy Spirit-filled community responds to the gospel, willingly proclaiming their witness one with one another. We have all the pieces to be like this, to experience this, to embody this. But what's missing As Todd discussed last week, our our first reaction to scriptures like this might be, well, yeah, I would be that bold too if the Holy Spirit was performing great signs and wonders in our homes today, like it did then. But if that's our attitude, if we're blaming the problem on the lack of healings, the lack of great signs and wonders, then we're asking the question, what's missing? And we're blaming it on God. Let me tell you this morning that God is not the problem. He never was and he never will be. Here's just a few examples. God wasn't the problem when man was expelled from the garden. It was Adam and Eve. God wasn't the problem in the flood. It was the people. 
And when an entire generation missed the land of promise to die in the wilderness, God wasn't the problem. It was the Israelites. All throughout the Bible, people, even God's people, stand between him and his promise to bless the world through his son. And still, his will is done. Amen? And when all is said and done on this earth, you better believe that his will is going to be done again. Our God, we know that you are going to do your job. And while you do, give us the boldness and the courage to do ours. Maybe the problem with our lack of boldness isn't God. Maybe it's us sometimes. Let's look one more time at Peter and John because we can use their actions as a model for our own as a church. Number one, are we racing to our friends? Are we racing to church at all? Is a better question. There are many who don't necessarily think that church community and fellowship are necessarily important. But if we aren't excited to be with people who share our zeal for God, if we aren't excited to, to be with people who share our zeal for the Bible, how long do you think that zeal is going to last? When we read passages like Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 47, or chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, how can we not recognize that these people, these believers, loved getting together because they were saved. You might think, oh, well, I don't fit in with this group of people, or, oh, I'm, I'm an introvert, or I'm not one to initiate conversation, or I'm just so busy with work, or your chores at home are a mile high. There's no excuse to not talk to your Jesus friends about Jesus. And if your excuse is you have to go home and shovel your snow, give me a call. I would love to shovel your snow if it means that you have the opportunity to talk about Jesus with your friends. Are we racing to our friends? Number two, do we really believe that God is in control? A passage was read earlier from Psalm 138. I'd, I'd like to read it again. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The work of your hands right there at the end is you and me, man and woman, the very people who were formed from the earth that God spoke into existence. Do we believe that God's in control? Number three, are we praying for boldness? I'm not asking are we praying, because we're certainly a prayerful congregation. The prayer list and us bringing prayers to one another on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of our friends and our family is a vital part of the body here at Spring Road. But are we praying for boldness? Are we praying for strength and endurance to do the things that we're called to do? 
like I said at the beginning, I, I don't want to bring shame on anyone about, about their faith. I'm preaching just as much to myself as I am to you. But I do hope I put a rock in your shoe as you leave. We should never become comfortable with where we are, individually or as a church. We should constantly be trying to restore characteristics, to restore the mindset, to restore the environment of the first century church. And when we get comfortable, we give up. My prayer is that something that has been said this morning from the word of God would cause you and myself to do a self-evaluation. Right now, it would seem that the authorities and those who live worldly lives are greatly annoyed by Christians. Maybe that means we're doing something right. Do not be afraid of the powers of this world when they're annoyed at Christians. Instead, you should be afraid when they aren't. Because when the world doesn't care about what the church is doing, about what Christians are doing, then Christians are looking too much like the world. Does the world recognize that you and I have been with Jesus? It's time that we prayed for boldness, and it's time that we meant it. It's time that we prayed, God, you are powerful, creator, sovereign Lord, and we know that you're going to do your job. And while you do, give us the boldness and courage to do ours. The church needs people who will be bold in their reading of the Bible. The church needs people who will be bold to proclaim the truth. The church needs people like you who are willing to take the stand as a witness, to share what you've seen and heard and how you live and how you speak. This morning, if you're not a Christian, then what's missing for you is the forgiveness of sins. That comes through repentance and through baptism, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whether you're a Christian or not, don't leave this morning without taking a look at yourself and asking, what's missing from my testimony? Or is my testimony useless? Your testimony has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with what you're capable of, but it's all about what Jesus has done in you what Jesus has done for you and what he's going to do through you. If you have any need this morning, whether it's here in person or on Facebook, please please make it known. If not right now in our service, maybe later this week. The church needs people who will be bold because the church isn't a place. The church is a people. And if people aren't willing to be bold in their faith, to be courageous and to stand together, then the church will die. Let's all stand together as we sing this morning.